0: I enjoy mostly when I can help people who come from places of adversity. I don't know somehow that you know warms my heart even more and when I help entrepreneurs actually achieve freedom.
1: Welcome to create new futures. Thought provoking conversations with leaders, experts and interesting minds. Join us. As we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author, and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Micha Matleyevsky. Micha is a business coach focusing on helping entrepreneurs and business executives. His approach was shaped by what he describes as an epic failure that eventually led to a redemptive renewal and a new beginning. A Slovenian high school dropout, his dream was to become a successful entrepreneur. Passionate pursuit and hard work resulted in four successful businesses and with their personal net worth of $15 million in his mid 20s. In December 2009, an unexpected call from his bank, which had decided to foreclose on his real estate investments, brought his world crashing down. This one negative event instigated an avalanche of ruin for his businesses, resulting in his four one successful company is going bankrupt. At 30 year old, Miha was now responsible for a collective debt of more than $5 million. And then with suicidal thoughts in his head, Miha decided to embrace his failure and began to climb out of that situation and take charge. He then proceeded to create a new startup generating eight figures in less than a year. His story went viral in Slovenia. He is now known as the Fail Coach. In that capacity, he helps entrepreneurs around the world embrace and have the healthy kind of relationship we all need to learn with failure and with the goal of reaching a higher level of success. Micha, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Hello, Aviv. It's a pleasure to be your guest. Let's dive uh, right in and let me first ask, what would you add to this story I just shared in the intro?
0: Oh, not not much. I mean, we can go in depth as much as you want, but I think it was a well-recapped story of how things went for me through this journey of the past 23 years. What was the lowest point for you? Well, the lowest one was when I was on the balcony on the other side of the fence. I remember I was, because the apartment was just about to be taken away from me. And it was after quite a few months of darkness, depression, anxiety, phone calls from all the debtors, all of that, you know, was just growing and growing that energy, that negativity in me. And so the apartment was a few days from being taken away from me. And I was it was an evening in the spring of 2010. I was sitting on the balcony smoking a cigarette, and even up to today I still don't know what got me to just, you know, stand up and climb over the fence. And as I was holding myself, I remember with my left arm, and I was like 45-ish degrees already inclined over, I was looking down. I was on the 5th floor. You know, when you're on the 20th it's a no-brainer, you jump you die. On the 5th floor, you know, miracles can happen, and you can. And I was wondering, I was really asking myself, am I gonna do this right, or will I just end up on a wheelchair? Uh, because that wouldn't help with, you know, the nuclear reaction in my uh, in in my head. And as I was thinking that, it it was almost like I don't know. I mean, it's hard to explain, but it was almost like I split into two mihas, Yeah, and one miha started yelling at another miha and you know i really i was yelling out loud at myself god knows how many neighbors heard me and you know it was i mean i used very juicy words that i'm not going to repeat on your podcast but you know along the line oh you made so many mistakes you 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 messed it all up and so on and so on and the the, the funny thing was hearing myself the word you 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 now to give a little bit of explanation I had the most perfect childhood where, you know, I was never held accountable for anything. I never had to really try for anything. Everything was just given to me, you know, by my loving parents and grandparents. And so I was not used to, you know, taking any responsibility for anything bad that ever happens in my life because, you know, how can that be? I mean, I'm that great, amazing next Jesus. So and if anything good happens that's you know just normal but whenever something bad happens it's always somebody else's fault or some something outside of
1: me and you know if you so admission show- so admission and shouting at yourself was the first step before you could take responsibility
0: yeah and you know if you remember those times it was very easy to blame to find blame outside of you you know it was the world crisis recession everywhere you know, media in the U.S., in Europe, everywhere. You know, it was just governments are not doing their part. Banks are to be blamed, politicians, and so on. So it was very easy at that time to find blame outside of you. And, and that was, you know, how I coped with it until that moment on the balcony. And so that was first time ever for me personally that I actually took responsibility. I mean, it was hard, you know. Figure. oh, it's me, you know, I made... But, you know, because there were those flashes of memories. I signed that deal. I went for that project. I decided to, you know, get this bank's funding and, and so on and co-sign this document and that and vouch for this.
1: When you begin to take responsibility, what happens? What What is the internal shift? At first it
0: was hard, but then next moment was really the aha moment. And it was, I already did it once. I can do it again. If I do things differently, if I make different decisions. And that was so empowering, more empowering that all those burdens that were, you know, kind of on me. And I found that little ray of light in, in that situation. And well, I climbed back and I started fighting again.
1: If I slow down and listen, listen, deeply to what you said there, what you describe is not the definition of responsibility, but the definition, that pivot that you're describing was you saying to yourself, I can succeed again, I can win again. And I saw that rediscovery of confidence in yourself, perhaps is what leads to taking, taking responsibility. In other words, I'm listening to, your, to you, I'm thinking, we are only prepared to take responsibility to what we believe we can actually carry. Because when you, when you take responsibility, you carry the, the weight. You felt you could make it, a, you can again succeed. And because of that, you said, I'm going to climb back from yes. this very difficult spot. Yes.
0: I mean, the thing is, you know, you need to see some light. Maybe it's very distant, maybe it's very little light, but you need to see some light. You need to have some belief so that it's worth fighting that the thing what happened to me prior to that moment in those four or five months was I lost all belief you know I remember thinking oh you know I used the good portion of my life and now this is it this is my new reality this is it for the rest of your life and that's why I started you know asking myself Is it even worth living and so on? And that's why the whole idea of suicide started creeping in because I saw nothing. There was nothing for me, no little ray of light to grab onto.
1: So the insight from what you offered there that I distill is believing in ourselves is the first most fundamental currency if you are to be able to do anything. And you were able to f- rediscover that sense of belief in yourself. You said, I, I've done it once, I can do it again.
0: Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, in general, you first have to believe before you, uh, before, before you can actually start uh, moving towards, towards any goal. If you don't believe, like why so many people, they quit smoking and then they start again and again and again and again because they don't really believe that they can actually stop. With everything in life, I guess, you first need to have that belief, oh, I can do it. And then that gives you the motivation, that gives you the power. And, you know, one thing that I really want to make sure to emphasize here, often people think when I share this story in a shorter way, people think, you know, oh, he had the aha moment. And then, you know, from there on, everything was just smooth sailing. It it was like three and a half, almost four years of daily battles between old Micha, new Micha, old habits, new habits, this way of doing that way, not being motivated, weather changes, this, that, like everything was a struggle. Every single day, every single hour was a huge struggle. But yes, I had that, ray of light and i was fighting for it the more i was fighting the stronger i was becoming the closer i was to actually doing something and i remember i mean you 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 reminded me right now i mean i haven't talked about this on any interview so far but i remember distinctly that so that was in 2010 My startup was started in 2014, but I remember in 2013, after, you know, two and a half years of battle, I already grown a lot, learned a lot and so on. I wasn't able to explain to anybody why I think I will be able to, I I had this idea for my new startup. It was an energy efficiency startup. I was sharing it with everybody. Most people were telling me that I'm just crazy. And I wasn't able to, you know, empirically or factually explain why I know I will do it, why, why this will be a success, why I know that I will get out of it. But that was the, this strong, deep belief in me. It was just a feeling, a sense. I don't even know how to explain. Even in Slovenian, I don't know how to explain it with words yeah. because there was nothing at all that, you know, would validate that and say, oh, yes, because of this, we, I believe that this is, it was just something deep in me. And I knew I'm getting close to that moment where things will turn.
1: Right. Well, let's keep in time. We'll we'll travel back and forth in in time. But let's talk about today in in these recent years and in in this, this time now, when you reflect on all the facets of your current work, what do you enjoy most? I
0: enjoy mostly when I can help people who come from places of adversity. I don't know, somehow that you know, warms my heart even more. And when I help entrepreneurs actually achieve freedom. I mean, there is this thing, like when somebody identifies as an entrepreneur and you go and ask them, like, why, what's your why? They will all say freedom. They will then, of course, have different explanation what freedom means to them, but they will all say freedom. That's why we are in it. The entrepreneurs, number one, freedom. Number two, impact. We want to impact world, community, children, animals, whatever. But, you know, those are the two things that are very common. I would say nine out of 10 entrepreneurs, if not 10 out of 10, they want freedom. What is your definition of freedom? It's very simple. It's the freedom of choice. That's the ultimate freedom. You need to have the freedom of time and the freedom of money. When you have those two, you have the freedom of choice. And then you're free to do whatever you want to. But there is a big difference between if you say, I choose to do this or I have to do this. And what I see in this world is that 99% of the entrepreneurs have to do what they do. They don't choose to do it. And that's a big, big difference. And when you start talking with them, and you know, when you're the sales coach, they tend to open up a, a bit more, especially, I guess, because I talk so openly about everything that happened to me in the past. I don't BS around, I tell, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and so on. And it creates this distrust. This and they open up a bit more, I would say, than what they would normally open up. And, you know, you start hearing stories like, you know, I feel trapped by my own creation. I started this business because I was passionate about X, and now I'm doing all the BS stuff, the boring stuff, and so on, like being the CEO, CMO, CSO, CTO, and so on. Most of what I see is that, entrepreneurs in the six seven figure range they control all the cash flow creating functions in the business and that's no freedom it's not And, and so yes they they have most of them when they achieve you know the multiple six figure mark and above They have the freedom of money. Let's be honest. At that time, you have enough to live a comfortable life. It might not be a lavish lifestyle, but it's enough for a comfortable life. And then they make a compromise with themselves. Okay, maybe I won't have the freedom of time, but at least I can provide for my wife and my children and I can you know make the better future for them something I didn't have when I was growing up and 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 yeah they put those stories inside of their head and most of the time what I'm helping entrepreneurs is to achieve not the freedom of money they already have that the freedom of time and that's the hardest one it's much harder than the freedom of money
1: right well as I listen to What you're framing there, it occurs to me that there is a third vector of freedom. There is the freedom of money. There is the freedom of time. But there is the perhaps most critical freedom, which is the freedom of self-knowledge. Because unless people know themselves to the degree that they're able to calibrate what indeed drives them and why they do what they do, then... They become slaves, you said, slaves of their own success or or slaves of the very thing that they have created without the ability to extract themselves out of that situation. So how do you help those entrepreneurs to uh, gain control of their time and to re-architect their life and, and their success? Technically, that's super easy. Like, give me six months and I can turn
0: around any company or less. You know, like first two to three months, you lay down solid, strong foundations, you know, processes, KPIs, benchmarking, BI, uh, HR structure, and so on. So those are, you know, the, the hardcore measures that you do. And that's easy. Two, three months in any business, two more months for a little bit of polishing, pivoting, and we are done. So up to six months. The biggest part, and, you know, although I am a business coach, but I feel that most of the time I'm more a therapist or a life coach or, I don't know, a buddy, a friend, because it's always you, the entrepreneur. You need to change. You need to start thinking differently and it's you need to start looking at things differently you need to start prioritizing things differently yeah like you said you need to rediscover yourself you need to figure out first know thyself and so on and it's so first we have to do a lot of the one-on-one work on the entrepreneur and then the hard skill part or the hard part that that's easy the technical part that's super easy really all you need is basic solid foundations like i said processes kpis benchmarking business intelligence so that you can see things click quickly and make quick decisions hr structure internal knowledge base company culture and so on so those are the, that's the easy stuff once you get the entrepreneur to actually believe that that's possible so that's the first thing and then the trust that i can help them create a system that they can trust that's the biggest fear because they created this baby they have so many emotions attached to that baby and you know, oh, if somebody else takes over the sales and somebody else takes over the marketing and and the CEO function and this and that, I'm losing control. But that's why when you have solid foundations, good systems in place, foundations in place and so on, and checks and balances so that you can maintain that overview, then you have the trust. And then usually after the six months, we usually take another three to six months for the whole transitioning period, so that it's not done abruptly, which can, you know, affect the business. But so that we do a smooth, nice transition, and I teach them everything about how to maintain control without right. being in the business, just from a shareholder point of view. And then, you know, often they fell in love back with the business because that relationship wasn't there anymore. You know, they, they're doing it because they have to for the freedom of money but the love is gone you know and so and now th- just let me finish this quickly uh because you know then they fall in love again because there's this it's not a need is i can choose and then usually they go back to doing certain things in the business but things that they really love like you know, creating something or being the, I don't know, chief of R&D department or something like that, or maybe coding or, you know, something, what they did when they started it, what they really are passionate about. So those are then some of the things and they then they let the system do the rest.
1: When you talk about transition, do you mean that you help them bring in professional management so that The fact that they created the business doesn't mean that they are the best person to actually run the business Um, either so i would say that it's not
0: 50 50 i would say it's probably 70 30 70 percent of entrepreneurs they are more the creative types and they, they they don't enjoy the cmo and cto and ceo and coo positions and so on so for a lot of them bringing in a new team that will take care of growing and scaling their business further is is what they really want. And they want to, you know, do something different. Then I would say probably about 30% of them, they really want to learn and, and become, you know, go to the next level. I would say they are like jeff bezos you know jeff bezos started as a startup founder what 20 30 years ago but he really went from one role to another to another and you know look at him now a classical ceo so entrepreneurial about
1: him anymore what is your engagement model do you engage uh, on equity basis on on a per project on a how do you engage? What are the, What is the principles by which you, you, you engage? I'm very open to, the, to, 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 to that. Most of the
0: time, they just pay me for my coaching and consulting and mentoring through that, everything. What I always start with is I start with a very, very thorough due diligence. So that's like, I don't start without that. So if you have a multiple six-figure and above business, that's where we start because I can't commit to something without really having the outside perspective from my point of view, where the company is right now, where they want to be in two, three years time, what resources are available and not just money, but also do they have the human resources? Do they have you know other resources? Is the business model good enough to grow and to scale to that? Do we need to change that? So I really have to get to know the company almost as if it's mine. And that usually takes between month and month and a half. Once we do the due diligence, they get a full report. And I mean, there's a lot of value in the due diligence itself because they get quarterly ideas, how, what they need to do quarter by quarter basis for the next year. They get to know what are the wrong steps they're doing, what are the bottlenecks, where they need to focus, what's good. So it's, it's a, an elaborate report that they get. So just doing that is already very beneficial. Right. But, and and then, then we can talk about the further engagement. The,
1: the report sells the, the next phase of the engagement.
0: Um, Yes and no. Sometimes I'm not the best person for the next phase. Sometimes they need something different than than what I can offer them. So I'm not always the best for every situation. I do know with my team how to do the due diligence. And even, you know, we live in a very shaky times in the recent months and, and, and so on. With everything that's happening around the world, quite a lot of companies are really reaching out to me to do We do recession-proof checkup, just whether all the foundations are there, are they set up in a sustainable way or not?
1: Let's get back to this theme of the psychological and the emotional aspect of leadership. What must we understand about dealing with the psychology of success and the psychology of failure?
0: Well, I mean, you can't succeed without failure. That's a given. I mean, you know, let's be honest. I mean, un- unless you've never tried entrepreneurship, then you know that you know to succeed, you have to do a lot of trial and error. And you know, um, if you're an entrepreneur, the bigger and the crazier your goal and the vision and the dream is, the more you have to be outside of your comfort zone. The more you're outside of the comfort zone, the more likely it is that you know you'll try and you'll fail. And so. Developing healthy relationship with failure is essential to achieving success. And the relationship is very simple. It's, it needs to be logical, not emotional. That's super simple. I mean, it's, it's much easier said than done, but it can be, of course, also learned how to develop that.
1: Will it be true, would you, would you agree that the other element in that is learning to not identify with your outcome. So when you succeed, great, you have done a lot, but you are not the success 100%. There were other people involved. There were circumstances and so on. And also, likewise, when you're on the failure side, something you attempted to do failed, but you yourself are are not a failure. So actually separating between you and the result and not defining yourself or identifying yourself by today I'm successful, tomorrow I'm... Failing is some kind of a foundational maturation, psychological maturation. The way I approach it, you don't even need to do that. Because
0: the way I approach it is, so, you know, you fail at achieving a certain goal. So the first thing is, did you set your goals with the smart technique? I use the smart technique, smart goal setting. So, you know, I mean, if I say, I want to move Mount Everest, To the U.S., I mean, that's not a smart goal. It probably won't happen no matter what I do, no matter how big I dream. So, you know, first is to recheck whether you used smart goal setting technique when you're setting a goal. And then let go of the goal, but focus on the process. Everything is process. Um, I'll give you a very simple example, not an entrepreneurial one. But let's say, you know, we can see each other over the video. So you can probably see that, you know, I I could use in losing uh, 10, 20 pounds or even more. So let's say I set a goal for the next month, I want to lose 20 pounds. And if I go to McDonald's every day, I mean, I'm probably going to add 20, not lose 20. So that would be me setting a goal, but then doing completely wrong steps. Or maybe I am eating healthy, but you know I eat ten bananas and five salads and, and you know two portions of salmon and three avocados, and i don 't know what, so I am eating healthy food per se, but my intake caloric intake is far greater than what I would need to achieve the goal, and that would be an example of bottleneck you know like i have a bottleneck that i might not recognizing so i like i said your relationship with failure and it's not so much with the failure it's really with the goal setting you should be very logical about it not emotional you know how i don't know i i mean i can give you an example i was fighting you know being overweight all my life i remember many years ago i really had 300 plus pounds I went into the Levi store here in Europe. And I don't know, maybe in the US you can buy those large numbers. Here in, in Europe, you can't. I went into the store because I used to wear, you know, the 501 Levi jeans. And the lady told me, we don't have your number. And she said that in front of everybody. I remember walking out of that store and I was starting right now. I exercise five times a day. I will eat just raw salad leaves and nothing else for the rest of my (laughs) life. You know, we make those goals when we are highly emotional, either positive or negative. It's not a smart goal. It's not something that's sustainable for me, for, you know, other parts of my life. And so I failed, you know, and that's why I failed. And so if your whole way, how you set goals, how you focus on the process is logical, then failure will be logical as well. And you will just go back and recheck the processes.
1: Right. So let's build this and talk about mindsets that are most critical for entrepreneurs. What, what do you believe is the mindset that you see, that you coach, that you observe with the most successful entrepreneurs? Well, one is
0: definitely being a doer, not an excuse maker. A lot of them make a lot of excuses then it's focused on what you have, not what you don't have. I know it might not be a mindset, but I see so many entrepreneurs. Oh, you know, oh, I, I don't speak English or I don't have this or I don't have that. Well, do something with what you have and build towards what you are lacking. But even Apple doesn't have all the resources. They're not unlimited. They have way more resources than you and I, but not unlimited.
1: I call what you framed there the law of the tree because the tree grows from its roots. That's the idea of grow from your what's available for you from your presence. You will never find a tree in the forest saying oh, that tree on this other side of the forest has a better position in the forest canopy. I want to jump over there and grow there now. The tree grows where the tree is. Uh, and We humans, we grow from the presence of what's available for us, not from what we don't have. Which, by the way, is the reason it is so important to pivot from scarcity-based behavior to abundance-based behavior because when we work from presence, we grow more of it. When we work from what we miss and don't have, Yes, I absolutely agree with you.
0: But what I see with a lot of entrepreneurs who are coming from the abundance is that sometimes that abundance is not good as well. Um, A lot of entrepreneurs, especially, you know, nowadays, the online home office entrepreneur, they come from the abundance. Oh, I have my whole day to work on my business. And then, you know, they start with watching going through Facebook for two hours and then down the rabbit hole on YouTube and so on. So I I think at the end of the day, we have to balance scarcity and abundance and, and find the balance between those two, because sometimes, you know, you'll get much more done. This is often a thing that I challenge entrepreneurs that I work with is you only have four hours a day. Now go and figure out what you can do with what you have in those four hours, that will create the biggest ROI on the return of those four hours. And not go into your day with the abundance, oh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, maybe I'm still single, I don't have a family, oh, I can just work all day long. And then uh, at the end of the day, you were very busy, but you didn't do anything, at least not the very important
1: stuff. Being busy and burning your time on Facebook is clearly not, um, not the right interpretation of abundance uh, mindset. So given what you're describing, what are the one or two or three most critical skills you find that you need to hone with your clients and and help them build?
0: I'll just give one more mindset that I believe is very important. And especially with how the world is changing in the fast manner and more and more faster, permanent beta mindset always growing, always learning, everything is in permanent beta, nothing is carved in stone, and applying that every day. And the three skills, I would say number one is doing reflection. Reflection is so much more important than anything else in your business. I call that staying in the firehouse versus being nonstop on the fire ground and just doing things. And then the two most uh, very important ones or essential ones for any leader are mindfulness and emotional intelligence. Mindfulness will help you turn off the autopilot, step away from the moment, put yourself in the driver's seat, and then emotional intelligence will balance you and ground you to make good decisions. Because if, if there's one thing that I see most often with entrepreneurs, and I was the same, it's that we use emotions when logic is needed and logic when emotions are needed. So, you know, emotional intelligence combined with mindfulness will give you that groundness to know when to choose left, when to choose right.
1: How do you free up your own mind? When when do you get your best ideas?
0: In the firehouse. For me, that's basically a bit my own way of meditation. I love mindfulness. I love mindful meditation. And I do the normal one when you just sit and, and you know focus on the breathing. But for me, my best mindfulness meditation is because I have four dogs, crazy, playful dogs. And when I have to take all four of them for a walk, there's no place for anything else than just to be focused, to be mindful, to be present, because they're so crazy. But yeah, that, that's where I get all the best ideas. It's when I'm uh, outside walking my four dogs.
1: Would these typically be ideas about questions you have already framed before? And, and it's more the case that now that you're busy, your subconscious mind or liminal process are able to access the, the innate intelligence and simply are able to bring you those ideas? Is, is that the way you interpret it?
0: Yes, most of the time, yes. Sometimes it's something, you know, out of the bloom. But yeah, most of the time it was about questions that were already pre-framed. I mean, I actually, uh, so I don't know whether this is in any way scientifically proven. But what I've seen in the past by reflecting is that sometime when I had these troubling questions on my mind before I went to sleep and I fell asleep with those questions in my mind, in the morning... I was either much closer or I even had a solution when I woke up. And so I said, oh, maybe our brain is working during our sleep. Again, I don't know whether that's happening or not, but it it proved very successful for me.
1: I'm pleased to tell you it is scientifically proven by by the experience of of many people. When I teach people the art of reflection, and I do that often in, in my workshops, it's the first Hour, I show them two boxes and i and I offer the idea that we call ourselves the sapient sapient species by which we mean that we are aware of our awareness and conscious of our consciousness, but that in reality it often looks that the the box of action, which is the red box becomes very large and the box of reflection becomes very small, and that it had gone instead of more balanced over the last 20, 30 years through the computing revolution, the other way around. We now work 24-7. And I do recommend very much that you have a notebook next to uh, your bed, by the way, because you, if you go to sleep with questions, sometimes you will wake up even in the middle of the night and or in the morning with the answer exactly the way you, you framed it. Why? You're out of the way when you're asleep, so your subconscious mind can connect the dots that... Visibly or consciously, you could not connect before, but you can now when you are, so to speak, consciously out of the game. And it provides sometimes genius, novel ideas that you couldn't see before.
0: Yeah, not always, but I mean, the way I do it. So every night, like I would say probably 15, 20 minutes before I head into the bed, I sit down and... I reflect on the past day on, on the day that just happened and during that reflection I try to figure out what is something that my brain can work on until tomorrow that will benefit me tomorrow and then I come up with you know a question I try to make it as specific as possible so a very long form question and then really I just go to bed I lay down and I just repeat that question over and over and over until I fell asleep. And I mean, yes, sometimes those things come during the night. I do have my phone next to uh, on on the nightstand so I can always pick it up and I have this nice recording app on it to just record the voice. Now, that's how I capture all my ideas. Anyways, because when I did the human design uh, thing, when they, uh, the reading on my human design, I've learned that I'm the vo- vocal person. So for me, being vocal so is the most important thing. And, and it really is. But yeah, that's what I use every single night, you know. And yes, sometimes nothing comes out in the morning, but a lot of times it does. And, you know, even if it's 50-50, it's more than zero. So instead of me flying through the meadows in my dream, I can work on things that will benefit my life next day.
1: Sometime you can do both.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: But uh, framing a as clear and as focused question is a powerful practice and I highly recommend it to anybody uh, listening to us now. It is an approach I use in, in many of my business ventures, which is to frame as clear a question as as we need to and as we can, it is also a practice that I bring to uh, spiritual and theological pursuits. Let me ask you, can you offer an example of when you needed to apply courage in your coaching, in your work as a coach?
0: I used to be very Mr. Nice Guy. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very hard for me, and and I really had to be very courageous to not be a yes man to my clients. And it, it was a huge battle within me, you know, from trying to be Mr. Nice Guy, polite, loved by everybody, and so on, and to really give my clients value. And you know, they deserve. It, it was hard for the my type of personality.
1: What what was the pivot? What was the pay Did you need to stop uh, worrying about them, liking you?
0: Not, not thinking about me. It was, you know, I had to realize that it's not about me. I'm just a tool helping them. And if I really want to help my clients, I need to get out of my own way. I mean, same same thing as with, you know, speaking at conferences. I once had to be on a stage in front of a few, I don't know, four or 5,000 people. And, you know, until probably a minute before I went on a stage, I was just thinking like, why Why don't I just start running? You know, like, why do I need this? You know, but then it was, it's not about you. You need to share the story because people need to hear it because then they open up and only when they open up, their healing starts. It's not about you. And the more things started to become less about me and more about others and what i want to do in this world the easier things began but it wasn't easy you know like almost 40 years you are you know mr nice guy and or you know 30 something years you're mr nice guy and and now you know you're torn between do i tell them the way it should be told or you know do i pivot a little bit you know just so that you know i'm a nice guy and it wasn't easy. So uh, I, I think that had to be quite courageous to overcome, to overcome that.
1: Right. So in this case, you needed to overcome something in yourself. Can you uh, say that today you are much more relaxed than it is with giving the honest bad news, if it needs to be bad news or tough news? Instead? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you because, love it. No,
0: be- be- because my clients often then told me later on you know like me we really appreciate you and love you because you're not a yes man coach we had so many other coaches who were you know just telling us how wonderful and this and this we- that we are but we yeah. needed to hear what you told us and because of that we made this and this progress i mean i've helped companies scale um, i don't know four five six seven x I mean, from millions to tens of millions, not from zero to, you know, I don't know, something little. In a year or two years and, you know, create really amazing results. And, you know, the more I heard that, the more I realized that this is what I need to keep on doing. And now I love it. Now I love to be, you know, the no BS guy.
1: Where will you be in uh, seven years? (laughs) I don't know.
0: Who knows? Maybe I won't be even alive. We never know. Like, I don't believe in such long-term plans because the world is turning so fast. What I do know is that I will keep living in huge alignment with who I am, with my values, with my beliefs, my priorities. They might change, but I know I will be pursuing what I believe in and what I stand for. And and that's really, in all honesty, all I need to know about my future.
1: Very nice. If you were to lose all that you know and keep only two ideas or only two capabilities or only two practices, what would you keep? Emotional intelligence mind and mindfulness. And by emotional intelligence, you mean the capacity to understand yourself and your process and your emotion and and calibrate and regulate.
0: Yes, and, and, you know, to have the empathy and so on, like the emotional intelligence in in a a bit larger
1: definition, yes. Great.
0: Those two things, yes.
1: Thank you, uh, Miha, for uh, this uh, exploration with you today. As we bring this to landing, What parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to uh, create new futures? Well, first of all, thank you, Aviv,
0: for this wonderful conversation. It was really lovely speaking with you. And I do hope that your audience will find value in this conversation. Last two very quick things. Number one, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to develop healthy relationship with failure. You just have to. And, And the second one is, be mindful that you lay down strong foundations you can't build up if you don't have foundations in place first thank you